Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, glad to have you with us today. I want to get right to our conversation uh, because a lot of what we're going to talk about comes out of headlines overnight. Uh, uh, two stories that are particularly important for our conversation today. Uh, number one, the grand jury, which returned a decision in how uh, the police officers involved in the Breonna Taylor uh, killing. We're going to uh, what kind of charges they were going to face. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And then the uh, demonstrations uh, that resulted. And in Louisville, two police officers uh, being shot, you know, in the middle of a presidential campaign, in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, racial justice and the use of police force in primarily the black community continue to be major themes that we need to address, not just as a community, but here on this show. So we're going to do that today. Uh, We start, of course, with uh, my Thursday partner on Political Rewind, Kevin Riley, the mayor, the boss, (laughs) the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, uh, we cannot escape huge headlines virtually every day in this year of 2020, and uh, the Breonna Taylor grand jury uh, uh, decision is another another one. You're right, Bill. It's good to be with you this morning, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation with, with the group you've put together here. It just seems like every day the fault lines of our culture are exposed in the news every single day. Um, well, I'm glad you're with us to help. Uh, discuss this. Uh, We're also joined again today, and I'm really glad she is back with us for this conversation, Tiffany Williams Roberts, uh, who is uh, the Community Engagement Council for the Southern Center of Human Rights. But uh, Tiffany, for the purpose of this conversation, uh, just as important, you are the co-chair of the Use of Force Advisory Council that was put together by Mayor Bottoms in the aftermath of protests and uh, previous police shootings of, of black Uh, people. And so you've been working on that. Thank you for being back with us today. It's an important day to have you here. Thank you for having me, Bill. We're also joined today by uh, an old friend of Political Rewind, Cesar Mitchell. He, of course, is a former president of the Atlanta City Council, candidate uh, for mayor last time uh, out, and uh, now a partner in Cesar, the world's largest law firm, Denton's. How are you, Cesar? I'm great. It's good to see you. It's great to see everyone uh, on the call today um, in these turbulent times. And we welcome for the first time uh, to the show uh, Professor Dean Dabney. Dr. Dabney is the chairman of the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Georgia State University. And um, Dr. Dabney, you, you're, what are you teaching this semester? I'd be always interested in what our academic uh, panelists are doing in the classroom. What's your class this semester down there? Uh, I'm teaching, well, first, thank you for the invite, and I really appreciate being here. Um, I'm teaching a course called Graduate Orientation. It's for our incoming cohort of PhD students. Um, in a pandemic, we're still trying to 
acclimate them and get their professional development kicked off. So uh, it's a small PhD seminar in person. Feeling safe in the classroom, though. You're doing it safely. Yes, yes. We've retrofitted um, a number of rooms on campus, and the one I'm in is a uh, simulcast room that uh, has social distancing, masks, and um, we are being very safe, and the students are, are being quite compliant. It's quiet Good. downtown. We're very glad to hear that. Yeah, I guess it is. All right, let's um, let's talk. Uh, Tiffany, I want to start with you. Um, uh, people have been hearing the news all morning and certainly heard it just a few minutes ago on the NPR newscast. But just to summarize very uh, briefly, the grand jury that had been uh, impaneled to look into the death of Breonna Taylor uh, and the three police officers who were involved in that incident yesterday returned their decision. And they decided that the two officers who actually shot into Breonna Taylor's apartment would face no charges because they were responding to shots fired by Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, who apparently had no idea who was breaking in to their apartment or coming in the door of their apartment uh, that night. Charges against him were dropped after he was initially uh, charged with shooting at those officers. The one uh, indictment they returned was against Brett Hankinson, who's already been fired by the department. He was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment, and that charge was because he allegedly fired multiple rounds into a neighbor's apartment, not even into Brianna Taylor's apartment. He did it blindly, not knowing where his uh, bullets apparently were going. We should point out I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Tiffany, that although it's first-degree wanton endangerment under Kentucky law, that is a Class D felony, a very low order of charging uh, in this. So, Tiffany, just start us off. First of all, what do you make of the charge and and what it tells the community, not just in Louisville, but all of us? So um, this officer fired multiple rounds into the sliding glass door of Brianna Taylor's apartment with uh, the blinds closed, right? And so um, he was charged for the bullets that entered a family's home where there was a child, a husband, and and a pregnant wife sleeping. And I think that what the rallying cries have been from the ground aren't that that family's lives were unimportant, but that it is really disturbing that even in the midst of all of this, what our laws basically permit is for law enforcement officers to essentially break into someone's apartment, kill them, attempt to um, sully their name. She was a first responder, right? Arrest the boyfriend who was trying to protect her and then fail to hold those officers accountable when we know that if uh, those law enforcement officers were just uh, lay people and this had happened, they would be under the jail, right? They would be facing, in Georgia, life in prison. And so um, people are saddened. And I think what we want for folks to understand is that the way that we feel about this, about individual cases, should be the reason that we push for systemic change and that's what Black Lives Matter Louisville is asking for and other folks on the ground. 
So uh, a question maybe maybe for uh, for Dean. Um, again, going back to the circumstances of the case, which of course are not just confusing to understand, um, but have been uh, you know reported in different ways, and then this challenge of of putting out there what the grand jury actually was exposed to. In other words, the group of people who had to make the decision about whether to charge and what to charge with these officers. I know that you probably don't have actual access because those those proceedings are secret, right, uh, Dean? But that is part of what's going on here in terms of people's perception. So sure. what's your take on that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, grand juries are a tricky thing because, you know, we're not allowed to know what happens in that room. Um, it's very strictly controlled uh, um, privacy issue. Um, but that said, the prosecutor does control the grand jury. And you know, the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich is widely used to describe that situation. But at the end of the day, it is true that it's the will of those grand jurors to decide what to charge and and um, you know, the, there's uh, that often gets lost in the in the consequences because folks think that it's a representation of the will of either the police department, the prosecutor, and um, that may not be the case. And unfortunately, we can't determine that accurately. Caesar, the uh, the African American Attorney General of the state of Kentucky went to great pains yesterday in announcing this decision. Daniel Cameron, his name, he's a Republican Attorney General, uh, to say that he felt so deeply about the family of Breonna Taylor, he understood the community's uh, response, but that within the uh, uh, purview of, of what he could do with the law, he didn't have a lot of latitude to, to go beyond the charges that were filed. But, but Caesar, again, I go back to this question of the message at a very turbulent time to the community. I, I looked yesterday at the faces of people who were gathered in the streets of Louisville to await this decision. And I saw I saw such pain on the faces of so many people. There's a photograph of one woman who is um, literally uh, crying in, 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 with, with just enormous pain, uh, feeling clearly that once again, a black life has gone un answered. And, and I'm, I'm curious about how you, you fit the law against the community and its needs. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, that is um, the thing that is most <laughs> painful to me about what happened yesterday, because, uh, you know, you know, emotionally uh, and spiritually, uh, we know that Janet Taylor lost her life uh, for uh, no reason at all other than uh, what I would call uh, a, 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 you know, a flawed, an incredibly flawed judicial law enforcement system and process that's in place. Uh, because intellectually, I know, I mean, just from the, from, from the legal perspective, uh, you have essentially a bad set of facts to actually charge the officers with murder. I think they were charged appropriately uh, but keep in mind, they were given a no-knock warrant, uh, and they got a no-knock warrant to go in and address what was happening, uh, to go in, you know, uh, arrest someone or to seize some whatever in an apartment. And then the 
and then the uh, the circumstances just evolved and continued to evolve uh, into what ended in her tragic death. And so when I think about this, I really think, and I, I reflect back on Katherine Johnston here in Atlanta and, and that no-knock warrant and how that resulted in her death here in Atlanta so tragically many years ago. Um, Remind everybody it, it, about that case. It's been a while. Well, that was a case where you had a, a an elderly woman over in in, in uh, Vine City, uh, you know, essentially not, you know, not bothering anybody. And the officers, for whatever reason, got a no-knock warrant. I think they were going to look for drugs or what have you. And they went to her apartment, uh, and she was there. Uh, and she obviously was not doing anything wrong, but they literally, when she attempted to at least defend and push back what she saw as a threat, they killed her. Uh, and they killed her really kind of with no sight, I mean, without really looking. And and that's essentially what happened. And, of course, in the Brianna Taylor case, you had a shot that was fired reasonably because someone was thinking that Brianna Taylor's boyfriend is thinking that you've got someone uh, that's breaking into the apartment. So you have a set of facts that are bad. And so I think in this case, uh, while those officers, I think, you know, could have made different decisions, uh, I think the, 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 the attorney general and even uh, the grand jury may have been somewhat hamstrung by the facts. So the, the, the real, you know, real murderer here candidly is what I would call the no-knock warrant and the failure of um, the system to have processes and 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 and, and other types of uh, you know restraints in place to ensure that when you know when officers are carrying out their duty, they're carrying out their duty uh, based upon a very solid foundation of facts uh, and circumstances. I'm going to jump in here, and uh, you know I want to follow up with Caesar, but then I really hope uh, that our other folks will will jump in. Caesar, you're in an unusual spot because you're an attorney, <laughs> you're a black man, and you were a former city council president, so you have the view of both. What is the law? Uh, how are policies established, and how can they be changed, and what's their impact? Right? I mean, you really kind of sit in that place. So uh, what I hear you saying is. This goes all the way back to basic policy, basic law that has been followed in our judicial system for a long time. And that's actually where I hear you saying that's where the tragedy, that, that's who you named as the culprit, right? Yes. Well, uh, let me, yes, that's the culprit. But I also think there's a tremendous amount of responsibility uh, that the, the Louisville Police Department and policymakers uh, have to, 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 to bear, and even the officers, in terms of how they approach this scenario. Uh, you know, yes, I am a lawyer. I'm a former policymaker, political, um, you know, elected official, and, and, and certainly a black man. Uh, but what I am also is uh, the son of an Atlanta police officer. Uh, and so that, that, that also gives me a very unique insight into what policing uh, is, unfortunately, in many cases, and really can be. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, and I do want to add to that and say, you know, whenever, whenever, I, when, whenever I thought about policies as a council member, uh, I always thought about those policies through the lens of my father, what my father would have done. And he was someone who believed in community policing. He actually did not believe in arresting people. I, I, you know, even as I look at these incidences that have happened around the country, even here in Atlanta, I thought from the perspective of what would my father have done? 
And, and I dare say, uh, the way police are oriented is incredibly important, not just in the academy, but as they get into the culture of the police department. And if that, if that orientation, and I'm going to stop there, if that orientation uh, is, is, is not right, they can end up being cops that are more likely to use force excessively than to resolve issues uh, with the people in the community that are charged to protect them. So, Caesar, thank you for that. You have such a broad perspective from so many points of view. I, I want to, mm-hmm. Tiffany, I want to come back to you um, because we want to move to this conversation about what the Breonna Taylor case and the response to it by the grand jury, the demonstrations in the street all tell us as we move forward to having this better understanding of racial justice, of how to rethink uh, policing. And and I want to get to that, but I I really think before we do that, we have to deal with one issue that comes out of last night in Louisville, the fact that two police officers were shot as demonstrations were underway. Now, we understand that we don't know who fired those shots. Uh, the news reporting today says that the law enforcement doesn't know whether they came from demonstrators, they came uh, from some other part of the community. We don't know. Nevertheless, as you work on addressing systemic racism, addressing dealing with uh, how the police uh, deal with the African-American community, that's the, that when police officers are shot, it's a real it really sends up warning signals to some of the very people you need to reach, doesn't it? Sure, it can. Uh, But what we can't lose sight of is the data. And the data supports that actually protesters and demonstrators are most at risk of being harmed during demonstrations. And so when we use anomalies to drive policy, we cause real harm. And we see that uh, with broken windows policing, we see that. Um, with a lot of the phenomena that have driven mass incarceration. So I think the messaging from Black-led organizers around police violence is that all life is sacred, but that until we acknowledge that Black life is sacred also, none of us will be safe. And so, of course, no one wants for police officers to be killed, but we have to keep that in perspective that that is not a likely outcome of um, of this activity, of this activism by communities. Dean, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, what hasn't been discussed as much as I think um, it should be is the role of criminal markets in all of this, in the sense that, um, you know, Brianna Taylor's death is an example of police trying to make an impact on drug crime. And so these criminal markets where you don't have victims, right, and you have willing participants involved in the sale of drugs, people, you know, whatever property, whatever it might be, um, creates a, a very difficult situation for police, right? They don't have the ability to turn to a witness. To do, they have to infiltrate the system, in effect. And so you see these things like no-knock warrants and, and um, very aggressive tactical policing as the way forward, uh, be that right or wrong. And the drops in crime that we saw through the 90s and early 2000s are attributed to that very orientation. The problem is that orientation also drives a wedge between the public and the police. And so you rely more on informants, you rely more on kind of uh, sleight of hand orientations to get into into the, you know, the market. 
and, and that produces high-risk exercises as well as challenging the relationship between the police and the public because the public um, feel used, feel exploited, feel as though they're, they're being over-policed for something uh, that they didn't want over-policed for. So I have to jump in here, Bill. I wanted to uh, ask Tiffany a question, but first to acknowledge, uh, Caesar, we share uh, something in common as both being the sons of police officers. I did not know that about, about you. Um, Tiffany, you know, Dean mentioned that relationship between police and community and how people feel. So, um, and the wedge that can be created. Uh, uh, what, what, I mean, what is that? What does he mean by that? In other words, what, what issues force that, force police and their communities apart that I think are, is, you know, represent the things you're trying to talk about and direct attention to? Well, I always say that if we look at the writings of people like Ida B. Wells in the early 1900s, what we know is that there has always been a divide between black folks and police. The relationship between black people and policing begins with slave patrols. And so sometimes the more, the more um, incisive question is, in what ways has policing persisted in causing harm in black communities and why? I think that, you know, and I saw time as the daughter of a community organizer. Um, my, my mother is a community organizer. And what we find all too often is that the voices of the people who are being harmed are sort of uh, quieted by, by the voices of government stakeholders and police. And so one of the factors that I think we are seeing is that in, impacted people are not being heard. They're not being heard. They're not being considered. And then the other piece of this is sort of these incremental reforms that don't address the root causes of violence. And, and it's not just the ultimate consequence of death, right? Death is the ultimate consequence of this kind of police violence. But there is violence at every phase of the criminal legal system, from community interaction forward, right, until the ultimate consequence of death. And so if we do not address what happens when we're talking about um, open-air drug markets and drug enforcement and broken windows policing and how that's driven mass incarceration, we can never address the, the harm of a mother losing her son to a traffic stop. And so I think we have to be honest about the limitations of reform and the importance of supporting and flanking grassroots organizers who are closest to the problem. You know, I, I would really like that. to, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I mean, I think Tiffany really touched on something very important and that is what is the relationship between the community and police or police in the community in a very tactical on the ground way. And I think there, you know, there are a lot of problems when it comes to that. Uh, and a lot of that's rooted in, in, in bias and racism and other types of isms uh, that we really have to address. Which we've not. I mean, it, yeah, I was just, you know, Tiffany made me think about uh, some songs I was listening to, this, some rap songs I was listening to this weekend. I listen to them all the time, actually. Uh, you would call it old school rap. But, but Tiffany talked about the conversations uh, have not been had and people are not being heard. Uh, and it's only been in the last five to 10 years that what, what's been going on for a very long time has been exposed for the eyes of the general masses through social media. Uh, I was listening to a song um, uh, by the Diggable Planets, and I listened to the, a song uh, by most of Many of you might not know who they are, and Tiffany, you might be too young to know who they are. But they were talking about in, the, in their song, I mean, almost <laughs> every the song, 
was about police brutality, over-policing, and a really horrible relationship between their community uh, uh, and police. And they talked about in some of these songs that I, that I know by heart and didn't think as much about then as that they are relevant now, uh, how police literally abuse them uh, every other day or so. And it was a part of their life. And so I think the, the, the fact that social media has exposed this more is so important. Uh, and it hopefully will continue to push this in the right way beyond just incremental change. So I've got to get to our first break of the show. But as I do, uh, Amelia Brock just sent me a really important uh, uh, piece of data. She, according to a 2016 survey from Pew, from the Pew Research Center, and this speaks exactly to what you were talking about, Tiffany and Caesar, about 75% of white people say that police in their communities do a good job when it comes to the use of force, equal treatment, and accountability. Guess what that number is in the black community? 33% of the black community says that police deal with them in a fair way, equal treatment. It's a perfect example of what the two of you were just talking about. Also, Amelia reminds me that in the aftermath of the Breonna Taylor uh, shooting, uh, Louisville, by a unanimous vote, their city council outlawed no-knock warrants, and they're trying to make some other police reforms, and that points us in the direction I'd love to pick up on when we come back, which is, um, let's get to the bottom of this notion of what it means to either uh, defund police, reform uh, police. Let's talk about, in practical terms, about what that might look like moving forward. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Joining us uh, today, uh, Cesar Mitchell, former president of the Atlanta City Council, now a partner at Denton's uh, law firm. Uh, Dean Dabney, he's the chair of the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Georgia State University. Uh, Tiffany uh, Williams-Roberts, who, in addition to her work for the Southern Center for Human Rights, is the uh, co-chair of the Use of Force Advisory Council that the city of Atlanta, that the mayor has established, Um, and Kevin Riley my Thursday partner on the show, the editor of the AJC. Um, To begin this part of the conversation, I actually, in terms of this notion of what does it mean to defund the police, to reimagine policing, whatever, to talk about it in more specific ways, I I do want to turn for just a minute, and Kevin, I'm going to take your newspaper as a a source for beginning this conversation. There was a story in this morning's paper that tried to unpack a, uh, a police shooting that took place in uh, Atlanta. Um, and, and here's what happened in very, in, in very brief terms. A police officer, a woman who'd only been on the job for about nine months, was one of the officers called to the scene of what appeared to be a domestic disturbance. There was a 28-year-old man acting very erratically. He had a gun. The officer... Uh, uh, confronted him by herself. 
She tried to get him to drop the gun. She couldn't understand his behavior. Uh, and eventually it led to her shooting and killing him. The story uh, uh, describes her, the officer, as sobbing as the man lay dying. And even the mother of the victim said to, about the police officer, she didn't know what she was walking into. I feel for her. I feel like she just panicked. She didn't know who my son was. She didn't know his capabilities. Her son was schizophrenic. Okay, um, so why do I bring that up now? Because there's a question as to whether it's the police or mental health professionals who somehow should be involved in that sort of incident. And, and that's, I think, part of what we talk about, isn't it, Tiffany, when we talk about what should the police actually be doing as opposed to other resources for a community, um, and, and that's is that am I, is it right to say that's a big part of this conversation? Yes, me. Yes. Um, in, in the city of Atlanta, uh, we have an Atlanta Fulton County Pre-Arrest Diversion Program that organizers fought for. And an article that was published recently showed that in the final quarter of 2019, police diverted only 24 of 432 cases. Now, sure, we want the police to have discretion, but one of the things that we did in the Youth of Course Advisory Council was uh, recommend that the mayor and council find ways to incentivize diversion. Because what we know is not only um, are community members in harm's way when someone shows up armed to a, to a call, um, but so are first responders. And so we, we've got to do a better job of ensuring that the right people respond to the right crises. Bill, I would encourage people to uh, both read the story you're referencing and watch the video of the incident that's available with the story because it does a good job. It's the officer's body cam, including the officer who fires the shot. Um, and it, it really, I think, puts you in the situation where the officers found themselves. And you can ask yourself what would have been the best things to do. And I don't think there are any easy answers for that. So, Dean, that's, that, that is my question. I mean, we have a society that's used to calling 911 whenever uh, something we're worried about, unsure of, threatened by. And is that really the best way to do things? What else do to, to, to help the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that video tells a great story um, in that, uh, Certainly, you know, the, the mother coming forward and saying the son had schizophrenia is heartbreaking, but there is no evidence during that video that they could have or should have known he was a mental health patient. The wife or the girlfriend doesn't say it. So, I mean, we think that it's simple, right? If we just put these reforms in place, they'll, they'll fit all the circumstances. But the reality is policing is messy. They show up, like you said, they get called from everything to the cat stuck in the tree to a volatile domestic situation like that, and they show up and the guy's got a gun. There's no indication that he's a mental health patient. In fact, watching it myself, when I saw the story this morning, I was surprised that he was a mental health patient because I did. you don't see anything in that body cam video or audio that suggests that. Um, I thought he was drunk, quite frankly, or, or you know, um, under the influence. That's, that's the trouble or the challenge for us, right? To create reforms that put the right people on the scene for the right problems. But the reality is police are always gonna be the first one, right? They can fall back and bring in appropriate folks and evidently the, the, 
um, story says that they did call for a crisis counselor uh, on the scene, but that individual didn't arrive before the situation went deadly. So um, the reforms, we certainly that reprioritizing, and, and I think you would find from police, I spent a lot of time with the police, you would find that they welcome offloading the mental health piece, offloading the, the drug piece. Um, the, but we, we have to be careful to realize that those are complex problems, that just changing that isn't going to stop the, the unpredictable nature of the work. Caesar, jump in. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, Dean is right. Policing is messy. Uh, it's dangerous. It's unpredictable. It can go from zero to 60 in a scenario that you might think only be, would be a one. Um, uh, and police officers uh, know that, uh, and they have to be prepared for that. Uh, their primary function is to protect and to serve. Uh, our 911 system is a system that is designed uh, to assist citizens uh, when they feel or they're experiencing a situation of emergency. And police are the primary uh, agency, the primary public uh, governmental authority that will show up to address that. Uh, with that being said, I, I think it, it is it's critically important uh, for us to start to take a look at, in a profound and authentic way, how to use other tools and mechanisms of government to address issues. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish between what is an emergency and what is creating a threat to life uh, and what really is, is a situation that can be handled by someone who doesn't have the ability to use force. Uh, and, you know, I, just one last thing I'll add to that, and that is, you know, um, you know, police officers, and this in some ways goes back to the issue of, of how police are oriented. Uh, I remember when I was a council member, uh, I passed legislation requiring police officers uh, to go through community-oriented police training in the academy and then coming out of the academy to literally walk a footbeat for a period of time and do nothing but that. Uh, and the primary purpose of that was to ensure that police officers got comfortable with the communities they were serving uh, and got to know the people. Uh, and so they would have a level of intelligence about the folks they're interacting with as they uh, were on the beat in the years to come. Okay, I want to read you all the first couple paragraphs of an article that the New York Times published in mid-June and get you to respond to it. Um, it here's, here's the lead. What share of policing is devoted to handling violent crime? Perhaps not as much as you think. A handful of cities post data online showing how their police departments spend their time. The share devoted to handling violent crime is very small. That could be relevant to the new conversations about the role of law enforcement that has arisen since the death of George Floyd. Uh, for instance, there's been talk of unbundling the police, redirecting some of their duties as well as some of their funding, hiring more of other kinds of workers to help with the homeless or the mentally ill, drug overdoses, minor traffic problems, and the like. All right, so Tiffany, all that said, uh, the New York Times compiled some data from three major cities on this. 37% of the time of police officers was res uh, spent responding to nonviolent calls. Uh, about 15% or more to traffic, um, about 12% or less to property crime, um, 
and then there was medical or other uh, uh, instances that had about 6%, violent crime at 4%. All right, so Tiffany, again, I want to try to go back to this question that people have so much trouble with when we say it's time to rethink, to perhaps defund the police. This article points us in directions that do talk about how we can use resources to give other people in other agencies an opportunity to be involved in working in the community. Sure. So police budgets have ballooned over the past few decades, right? We currently spend nationwide about $100 billion on policing. At the same time, we have seen the budget for our hospitals, our public hospitals, for our education system, right? And so police spend every other category of government spending. When people are promoting the militarization of police, uh, increasing the number of police on our streets, they don't say, well, we need more police because someone might steal your kid's bike. They say we need more police because someone may kill you, may rape you, right? Even though that's 5% of crime. And so when 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 we are demanding divestment from policing, we are asking us to ourselves to invest in the well-being of our communities. It is not an abstract concept. Dr. King said that moral uh, budgets are moral documents. And so if you read books like The New Jim Crow, if you read it, there's a book called Misdemeanor Land that talks about the way that misdemeanor crime enforcement is used to exact social control on black folks, brown folks, and poor folks. If we don't accept that as a fundamental premise, that that is one of the primary functions of law enforcement, you need not look much further than Fulton County. The non-complex division of, of Fulton County Superior Court deals with every crime that doesn't have a victim, so uh, that doesn't have physical harm caused person. At some point, the division with 70% non-violent, non-sexual, non-high dollar, right? There's got to be another way if we know that most things that we designate to be crimes are not causing harm to, to people's bodies. And that doesn't mean property crime doesn't matter. But property crime is often some other unmet need. And so if we're not addressing those needs, we cannot expect to have any sort of positive trends when it comes to decreasing the amount of harm in our communities. Uh, I want to, Caesar. I've got to. I've got to ask this question of you because, again, as a former member member of council, so this always sounds great, right? Why don't we put more police resources into violent crime and the most serious crimes? But then a constituent calls you because their car was stolen, or uh, someone has ripped off their uh, house and and stolen something. I mean, can you really make that argument as a practical matter going forward, or how do you? get there in terms of when you say make what argument the argument that we should direct police toward violent crime crime that has causes physical harm as i think tiffany points out but but when people uh address their you know local representatives are they're concerned about crime that affects them no matter how big or small right very true but what i think the issue is 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 whether or not we're deploying police and deploying resources uh, that are designed, you know, to, 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 to kill people and to, and to end violent threats. I mean, uh, without getting deep into the conversation, you know, you know, you know, when you look at those numbers, part of, part of what that might be a reaction to is, and I've read some articles related to this, you've got uh, a lot of these military level goods, so to speak, you know, weapons, 
uh, that are not as neat, not needed as much uh, in, in, in global conflict uh, and are now being, have been sent to local communities. So these local communities are getting a lot of these new kind of violent toys. Uh, but the other piece of this is, is that we have the data. And police officers, police departments have the technology to really pinpoint uh, what our crimes are, whether they're violent or, or not violent, whether they involve a person or don't involve a person. We just got to have the will and the willingness to grapple and dig in and take the time to look at the, the data and look at the tools. That take, I mean, the police have incredible technology tools, trust me. If we put the tools together with the data, we literally could de develop a matrix on what we need in terms of resourcing uh, uh, police departments. And I guarantee you, if we're honest with ourselves, the result would be much less, <laughs> much less guns uh, and different policy as relates to what police are doing and how city governments are using uh, their resources to address these, the data, the issues in the data. Hey, uh Dean, I, I want to expand just a little bit on this conversation about whether some resources that are now given to the police should be diverted to other uh, professionals in a community. And, and, and you had a pretty good argument for why that can be just as difficult to do, given police never know quite what they're going to run into. But um, a 2015 Washington Post investigation found that one in four people killed by police in 2015 had serious mental illnesses. That does seem to argue for why we need to be expanding our range of people who can respond to the needs of a community, doesn't it? Sure. And, and I think that there are some pretty good evidence-based practices out there that, that deploying mental health counselors in tandem with police or uh, having them available for a quick response carries a lot of potential to intervene on those situations and de-escalate it and get the mental health in front of the police uh, response, if you will. Um, but that is a, um, you know, uh, an expensive proposition in one way, and also a, a cumbersome proposition because the, the police feel as though, given that they don't know what they're responding to, they have to be on the ready when they approach, right? So they would turn around and point to the fact that the majority of police officers are killed during traffic stops that are completely mundane situations, right? So the, the, uh, I'm going to come back to this divide between the community and the police. The ability of the police to even police violent crime has been challenged largely in part due to police action in the sense that by militarizing and by, you know, uh, proactively, aggressively attacking criminal market crimes, they have driven a wedge between themselves. And you look at even something like homicide. Clearance rates from homicides are down 20% over the past quarter of a century. I would argue that's a result of the community not being willing to talk to the police. Um, and, and that fundamental issue um, is key. I, I think the reforms that are being proposed that put non-aggressive, problem-oriented, pro a problem-solving approach on the ground are those that, that have the potential to slowly and key slowly build that relationship back. All right. I've got to get to another break, but I've got to say, Dean, I'm glad you um, mentioned the fact that m the majority of police who were killed are killed because of traffic cops. I don't want to use the cliche, but I don't want this conversation to ignore the fact that clearly 
uh, whether their responsibilities should be changed in some way, whether it be they're being thrown into situations that would be better uh, performed by, say, mental health professionals. There are good cops out there whose lives are at times endangered. And, and again, I know these days it's a cliche to say that most cops are doing their job well, but the fact is uh, there are a lot of, of obviously really good police officers out there. All right, let's take our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Most of you know that uh, we, although you can't see it, we get to see each other uh, while we're doing the show on the radio. And Tiffany Williams-Roberts just brought her her daughter in front of her camera. What a cutie. Uh, Tiffany, I do want to turn to you very quickly. Um, Tell me about the Use of Force Advisory Council. If you can give us just a little window into what you're accomplishing and what you think people in Atlanta can expect will come out of your work. We published our report. We, we had a charge to um, promulgate recommendations for the city within a 45-day period of time. Uh, and so we, we have 33 recommendations to the mayor around how we can reduce the incidence of police violence. And the thing that I found most, most important um, was recommending non-law enforcement responses to certain crises and coming up with a continuum um, that we could use and analyzing 911 data. So what are people calling in about? And then um, plotting that data on that continuum. The website um, for the Youth of Force Advisory Council not only has all of our reports, our interim report, our final report, but all of the calls and the Zooms that we had, which were on video and recorded. So the community is available, I mean, uh, should be able to access all of that information. And we're hoping that council and the mayor will take the pieces that they can act on immediately. Mayor Bottoms issued uh, several executive orders, and the seventh executive order is the one that requires some inquiry into non-law enforcement responses to crisis. Oh, good. All right. Thank you for that. Dean, I don't want to drag you into a political fight, but here I go. Um, As we look at whether we need to do something to try to make police more accountable for their behavior, especially in minority communities, as this debate goes on, it's a smart debate and it's a passionate debate for sure. But to what extent is President Trump politicizing it by uh, building a campaign now around law and order, talking about terrorism in the streets of American cities? Uh, how does he unwind the ability of people to address this subject seriously and realistically? That's a good point. I mean, you know, I, I would make the, the point that, you know, we, we have reached the point where the problem has been identified um, and there's plenty of folks at the table ready to talk. It's now time for leadership to pull it together nationally. Um, and certainly that requires um, a level of uh, collegiality and, and um, engagement, let's say, uh, that we just don't have right now. And, and, and we also need some, some national representation um, on the reform side. Uh, we need some folks to step up that are going to lead the conversation because, you know, criminal justice in, in the United States is by design decentralized. There's 18,000 police departments, for example. If we try and fix them one at a time, we're not going to achieve the the impacts that we need and so national reform would would go a long way toward um helping get us there 
Hey, Bill, I wanted to jump in and just say uh, two things that have been on my mind. The first, of course, is that I encourage people to watch that video at our website. I, I feel compelled to warn people. It, it's disturbing. I mean, it, it's a uh, Dean pointed out that it really tells a story, but I mean, it is it is hard, a little hard to take. So if you go to watch it, be prepared for that. Uh, the other thing I, I feel you know, personally to mention, I've, I've done a lot of police ride-alongs in, in uh, Atlanta and elsewhere through the years. Um, and I, I know that most police departments are very willing, able, and welcome that. It is, it is worth citizens, if you're interested, to do something like that and actually see what it's like out there uh, for cops because they are presented with difficult situations. Many of them make very good judgments and do do smart, do the things that you would hope they would do. And, um, you know, going forward, as Dean points out, if we're going to fix this thing as citizens, no matter where you stand on this issue, whether you've had personal experience with someone being killed by a police officer or whether you're kind of way over on the uh, I believe in police and law and order side, we, we have got to have a set of common facts and things we all come to understand about what's going on. Caesar, I want to give you a chance. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, it's important to note that uh, we've got to be willing to put the work in and, uh, and, and, and resist urge to, to engage in knee-jerk uh, policies and knee-jerk reactions. Um, you know, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I come from a law enforcement family, uh, and I, you know, have friends who are police officers at every level, uh, uh, every rank in the police department, and I know how they think. I know what they grapple with. And in my time in in, in, in elected office, candidly, I found myself at odds with the police and sometimes the union more often than not. Uh, but we cannot, in my opinion, have this conversation without police officers. Uh, being involved and at the table in an authentic way, uh, and I think that's critically important. But we got to put the work in, and we got to do it authentically. Um, I'm glad you said that, Caesar. So I want to make a commitment. I think the next time that we do a show on this subject, and I guarantee you, uh, we will continue covering it because it is so crucial. Uh, I think what we need to do is make sure we have at least one police chief on the program, and I understand that that could get into a thorny conversation and uh, might be a, uh, uh, we might see passions rising on both sides of it, but I think what you say is, in fact, quite important, Caesar. so thank you for that. Um, we are completely out of time for today's show. Uh, Caesar Mitchell, uh, Dean Dabney from uh, Georgia State University, uh, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, and Kevin Riley, thank you so much for a, a, a really informative conversation today. I came away with a much better understanding about this whole question of how we think about policing and what aspects of it really belong in the hands of other kinds of professionals. Uh, so for me, it was a really enlightening uh, conversation, and I appreciate your all being here uh, for it. Before we do leave you, I, I, I want to tell you that um, tomorrow we are going to turn our attention to the Centers for Disease Control, uh, which used to be, of course, the gold standard in terms of global health agencies for giving out data and addressing diseases worldwide, and of course is under fire right now. That should be a fascinating conversation. So that's it for us today. Thank you to Jesse Neiswanger and Amelia Brock for your work on the show. 
Um, I'm out of here. Before I leave you, let me remind you, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.